Welcome to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization in Memphis, Tennessee, and The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it better for everyone. On today's episode, I spoke with Insha Rahman. She's the Vice President for Advocacy at Vera Institute for Justice. Insha is a nationally recognized expert on bail reform and pretrial justice. She also supervises Vera's place-based initiatives in California, Louisiana, and New York. She's quoted often in major media outlets, including the New York Times, NPR, and PBS. In addition to her work at Vera, Insha is a board member of the ACLU of New York, the Aspen Institute's Criminal Justice Reform Initiative, and Dignity and Power in Action. She served as co-chair of Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's Transition Committee. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Insha Rockman. Insha, thanks so much for joining us to talk a little bit about uh, pre-trial detention, bail reform, all the great things that you've been involved in in New York City and New York State and now around the country with Vera. Um, but let's start by talking a little bit about the work you were doing before you joined Vera. You were a public defender with Bronx Defenders. Um, sort of talk to us about your awakening to the problems with pretrial detention in your local community and then in the country. Well, I became interested in criminal justice and justice reform work um, over two decades ago, so long before I became a public defender. And two things happened at the same time for me, one very personal and one that I really credit with my sort of political awakening. Um, I was in college when 9-11 happened, and um, my family, I'm uh, the child of immigrants. Uh, my family is Muslim, South Asian. Um, I was always raised with a belief that if you put your head down and you work hard, good things will happen to you, and if you keep your nose clean, you won't get in trouble. And 9-11 taught my family that that belief just isn't true. I had cousins who were disappeared by the FBI and questioned. I knew men in my family and in my community who were forced to register for special registration. And while all of this was happening, um, you know, I was in a college uh, prison visiting program where I spent every Friday afternoon at a maximum security prison in upstate New York. And both of those things happening at the same time just gave me and my family a sense of what it means to not be as free as you might think you are or think that you deserve to be and what that lack of freedom, that surveillance, that oppression has meant for certain communities since time immemorial in this country. And to feel it personally, to understand it politically, to see what uh, jails and prisons, because I've never thought about it until you know going into a maximum security prison myself and then seeing my cousins disappear um, and be, be held in detention. That's really what made this both incredibly personal and incredibly political for me. So that was really the moment over 20 years ago um, that inspired this work that I've been doing ever since and you know, uh, likely will be doing for, for the rest of my years. But that's a, a long way of just giving a little bit of background and context to myself, Josh. Yeah. But you asked a great question about <laughs> bail, pretrial detention, being a public defender, which um, I was for a little over five years up in the Bronx, New York. And I represented thousands and thousands of people at bail hearings over that time. And 
The question I would always ask when I'd see judges set bail on the people I represented was, does the judge just set $500 bail because he thinks the person I'm representing can make it? Or did he set $500 bail because he intends to keep him in jail? And there are a lot of problems with money bail and the injustice of how we use pretrial detention. But to begin with, with money bail, it fundamentally obscures the intent of what are we deciding to do in that pretrial decision? Is it release or is it detention? And that fundamentally should offend all of us because at the very least, no matter who we are, how we vote, our political orientation, we believe we should have a system where the intent is clear and there is transparency and accountability for decisions that are made. Right, right. I'll talk about it as a, almost a, a foreign language when people who mm -hmm. don't you know, really understand bail or want to know about what bail is. I talk about it in terms of a language that you're just not going to understand unless you stand in those courtrooms in those bail hearings like you just described and you hear the number and it means something after a while to you, the attorney. It certainly means something to the judge uh, and it is not the best way, right? We should be clear and, and that's that's really great. And and thanks for the layers of that background story. That is so much more than uh, than what I expected, frankly, I, you know, as a public defender myself, like I think we all come to this out of that same reason, but uh, that's an incredible story. I appreciate you sharing that. And and so, as you know, one of the reasons we we're talking today is because Shelby County, where I, I live and, and where Just City is in Memphis, uh, we're we're currently trying to implement some of our own reforms to the pretrial detention process. Um, so, in which you know you've been involved in communities across the country for years, uh, we've been doing this. So, talk to us a little bit about some of the misunderstandings uh, and misconceptions about the kinds of changes we're trying to make in Shelby County where we're trying to talk about alternatives to cash bail and, um, uh, and, and how can we, how can you help us speak to the community to, to help us understand um, what we're really trying to do and why we're trying to do it? Yeah. So first of all, what Shelby County did at the behest of incredible organizing and advocacy from you all and many others in Memphis has actually agreed to a settlement after being sued to say, okay, we're gonna step away from using money bail. And what we're gonna do instead is agree upon a process where we'll first consider just releasing people and making sure that they come back to court. If we can't just release people, then consider what are called non-monetary conditions of release. So maybe some pretrial supervision, other uh, conditions, if not that, if we don't think that's enough to get somebody back to court or to stay safe in the community, then we'll consider money bail. But if we're setting money bail, then we have to do it after uh, an inquiry into how much the person can afford. And if it turns out money bail is set and the person can't afford that bail amount, then there's another hearing because it's clear that that bail amount is not actually a bail amount that will get the person out. It's a bail amount that will keep them in. It's what's called de facto detention. And that's a really sensible, smart, pragmatic way to have pretrial decisions after an arrest uh, while somebody is pending trial made. What is controversial about it, though, is a couple of things. One is there is this myth that we need to actually set bail on people and we need to hold people in jail to keep the community safe. What we have seen from a number of different places that have done bail reform and actually moved to the system that Shelby County in Memphis is uh, moving towards is that you can have far fewer people in jail, you can stop using money bail, and people come back to court and in fact are just as safe, are just as successful than if they had a dollar amount hanging over their head or if they're sitting in jail. 
And that is, I think, a really profound uh, misunderstanding that many community members, certainly many elected officials have about the system. And I think it's incredibly important to message what we are doing, these reforms are consistent with public safety. In fact, they improve public safety because just the fact of being in jail for somebody, even for 24 hours, actually makes it more likely they'll be arrested again in the future because jail itself is so destabilizing. You lose your job, you lose your housing, you lose your ties to your kids and your family, and that actually makes you more likely to be in trouble in the future than if you got to go home and you're back in your job, you're back in your community, you're back with your family and fighting your case that way. But you know, I have to play devil's advocate and, and talk about the, the environment into which we are introducing these concepts and they are concepts because that's not what we do in Shelby yeah. County. Um, and, and this is happening in a time when um, some crime rates are up. They are up uh, year to year and short term generally, but um, the, the messaging and the, the communal understanding of crime is certainly reaching hysteria proportions in our community. And so talk about why this can still help <laughs> and why we should not say, we'll talk about this later after we deal with the rash of car thefts and car break-ins that people are, are committing in our community. Why is it still important? Why can we still do it? Why is it still a good policy decision? If it is. <laughs> yeah. I would say it is, and here's why, is we know what communities and what voters and what our neighbors want is safety. We all deserve to be safe. We also want accountability for a system that works and personal accountability when somebody breaks the law. And what we also all want is justice. And too often it's uh, pivoted as this false choice. You can have safety or justice, but you can't have both. And what we know from reforms and changes around the country and here in Shelby County is that you can have safety and justice. And in fact, communities, neighbors, our constituents want both. They don't want one or the other, they want both. And so, first of all, I think the most important thing to message in this tough political environment, and the problem we have is one of politics, Josh, it's not of policies. We have plenty of policies that we know actually make communities more safe. But we need to speak with one voice to say, we all deserve to be safe. We all deserve accountability. We all deserve justice. And what we know is that the tough on crime status quo actually isn't working to keep us safe. And what Memphis County has been doing for a very long time is the tough on crime status quo. And if you ask everyday residents of the county and of the city of Memphis, they'll say, I don't feel safe. I don't actually think what we are currently doing is working to keep us safe. And so what that means is what we need are solutions, not scare tactics. And the fear mongering that, well, if you do bail reform, crime is gonna skyrocket, there's gonna be even more blood on the streets. That's a scare tactic. That's not actually a solution. And when we blame the wrong causes for what's increasing crime, what's driving carjackings and other kinds of crime that people are concerned about, when you blame the wrong cause, you miss the right solution. And blaming bail reform is the wrong cause. It's not the right solution. You could roll back bail reform. It wouldn't actually make Memphis any safer. So what we know is folks want both safety and justice. There's actually a lot of popular support for bail reform itself when people understand that it in fact is synonymous with public safety. And so the work to be done here, Josh, is 
you know, at every turn, like in the media, we need our politicians to be talking about safety and justice and to say we can have both. And I acknowledge like we need to address your concerns about safety. Remember that the status quo tough on crime approach isn't working. And we actually need solutions, not scare tactics that prevent crime before it happens and not just react after. And here's what those solutions are. And what we know from all the research, all the public opinion surveys is people actually know what makes communities safe. And they will say to the person, literally, it doesn't matter if you vote Democrat, independent, even Republicans will say, if we address people's unmet mental health needs and substance use needs, if we provide people with economic opportunity, a good job and stable housing, those are the best crime fighting investments we can make. It's not actually more jails, more prisons, or rolling back necessary reforms like bail reform. Excellent answer. <laughs> Thank you. I'm I'm inspired. Uh, so uh, we're we're struggling with that, as yeah. I think even New York City and New York State are uh, yep. many many years ahead of us into this uh, this ex experiment, this this opportunity for reform. Uh, but but give us some promising examples. Give us some hope. Give us some uh, places where pretrial. Um, detention reform has happened and you have seen the things that you just promised us. Yeah. So let's take the state of New Jersey, which implemented bail reform in 2017. They did it statewide. And what we've seen is since 2017, so in the past six years, they've seen the jail population drop by almost one half. They don't use money bail at all. And what they've also seen is that crime rates have remained stable. And in fact, people's quality of life and neighborhoods have gotten better. And the reason is that bail reform, we know this, doesn't actually compromise public safety. Um, if we keep people home and with their families and their communities, that actually contributes to public safety. What we also saw in addition to bail reform statewide in New Jersey and those great outcomes, what we also saw is um, an investment on things like preventing gun violence, um, making sure that there was better police community collaboration um, to prevent crime and not just react after. Um, so there's a really comprehensive approach that um, places can take. And I think New Jersey is a great example of that. And especially um, they've actually maintained really strong support for bail reform. And there's been fear mongering. It's not as if there isn't pushback, there always is. But what the elected officials and the chief judge of the Supreme Court of New Jersey, what they all did, which was missing in New York, which is where I am. I know a lot about bail reform here and I'll talk about that in a second. But what they all did in New Jersey is when the reform was being attacked by your usual suspects like police chiefs and law enforcement and the bail bond industry, what the chief judge and other key um, you know, stakeholders said is we need bail reform and reminded people about why it was good for safety and justice to do this reform. And so in take in contrast, New York. So I was here in New York. Before we, yeah. I hate to interrupt you, but before we oh, move okay. to New York, let's uh, take one more uh, trip through New Jersey into the pacing bit that you talked about in Shelby County and Memphis in, in our my hometown. We are in, nationally now, uh, um, experiencing this moment of crisis in our police department. So 
some of the things you mentioned that they, they improved. So this is sort of a multifaceted approach that did include bail reform, but you also mentioned policing and improving their relationships and communities. What types of policy changes and investments did they make in New Jersey? And then go ahead and talk about New York. Of course. So let me talk about the city of Newark because over 10 years ago, Newark had some of the highest homicide rates in the country, had absurd rates of shootings, um, assaults, other kinds of very serious, very concerning crime. What the city did was invest in um, some really significant training and support for the police department, but also, also invested in programs like community violence intervention, which are community uh, experts and social workers and counselors who actually know, because they are from those neighborhoods, who are the people most likely to pick up a gun and perpetrate gun violence, and who are the people most likely to be victims of gun violence. What they do is intervene so that those shootings don't happen in the first place. And when they do, they respond immediately to prevent retaliatory gun violence. And if you look at the statistics in Newark, because of these community violence intervention programs, you've seen um, homicides as well as shootings decline tremendously. You've seen residents say, I feel like there is better collaboration and trust in the police. Um, Memphis is really dealing with a crisis of confidence in the police department after the murder of Tyree Nichols and that video that doesn't matter who you are again, you are aghast by seeing the conduct of the five police officers in it. And Newark had a very similar crisis of confidence in the police and also can this local government actually keep us safe, especially in communities most impacted by violence. And the investments that it made in saying, we are not going to pit the police against the community. It's not one or the other. In fact, we need better policing, not necessarily more policing, but better policing. And we need to have a more comprehensive, holistic approach to preventing crime. And that's the investment in community violence intervention and many other measures like that. That's actually what helped Newark get to a very different place, literally just 10 years, 10 years on. It's remarkable. And I'll say, how do we know this actually works other than the sort of feel good story of like more collaboration? Well, you know, most of the country experienced a real uptick in shootings and homicides after 2020. Newark was one of the few places that bucked that trend. Sure, it went up a little bit, but minuscule compared to the rest of the country, minuscule compared to a place like Memphis or even New York City where I live. So that's sort of the proof of, in the pudding of like this works and these investments work. Um, it's not just feel good, touchy feely. It actually has concrete results um, that you can measure and see. Awesome. And I'd interrupted you before you were no, moving gonna... on to New York State and, and maybe there's some different examples yeah. or different. I, I know the politics there have sort of been challenging yeah. over the last several years. So talk, talk some about that. Yeah, so in New York, which is a triple blue state, right? Blue legislature, blue uh, governor, blue you know mayor in New York City. Most people across the country would think, well, if anywhere bail reform would work, it's in New York City and New York State. And here's the thing, again, it doesn't matter about being sort of in a more blue or red or purple jurisdiction. What we know is when you pass reform, if you don't go and talk at every turn about why that reform is necessary and that it is consistent with public safety and that public safety matters. And again, if there are real concerns about public safety, we need to 
address the right causes so we don't miss the right solutions. If you don't do that, that's when you actually lose support. And so in 2019, when bail reform passed in New York State, and this was a statewide legislative change, about 60% of New Yorkers were supportive of the reform. That's a high percentage. And then what we saw is the fear-mongering and the backlash in the media, really ginned up by the bail bond industry, as well as certain law enforcement members. We saw the attacks start. And Democrats who passed the reform didn't stand their ground and defend it. They didn't talk about why we need bail reform in the way that New Jersey stakeholders had done. They basically ducked and ran from the issue. And what we saw is three different attempts uh, in the state legislature to roll back bail reform and to chip away at it. And right now, if you poll New Yorkers on bail reform, less than 30% actually support the change because that's how effective the fear mongering has been. But let me give you a counter example of it does not have to be this way. So Illinois, also a triple blue state, a lot of the same political dynamics as New York, they passed bail reform in 2021. And again, on the campaign trail in 2022, big election year for everybody, what we saw is the governor was up for re-election in Illinois. Many of the state legislators who passed bail reform were up for re-election. And there was over $40 million spent in Illinois just in 2022 alone, uh, running ads saying bail reform is bad for public safety, literally putting people's mugshots in these fake newspapers and saying bail reform is going to lead to the purge in your neighborhood and in your community. A tremendous amount of backlash and fear mongering around the reform. What we saw in Illinois that was different from New York is everybody from the governor on down to the state legislators talked about bail reform. Why do we need it? Why does it matter? Why is it actually going to make Illinois both more just and more safe? And also talked about issues of crime and safety, gun violence, carjackings, assaults. They heard voters got their concerns and they owned the issue. They didn't run away from it and they didn't double down on their own tough on crime policies. What we saw is November 8th, 2022, the election, all of them won re-election comfortably. And then there was a poll that came out in late November of Illinois voters asking, how do you feel about bail reform? 60% said they felt neutral or favorable towards the law change. That's the actual difference that defending the reform, talking about it, and also talking about the need for safety and justice, that's the difference it can make on public sentiment and support right. for important reforms that we know are necessary, that we know work. Especially in a time when the city is in a crisis of policing and experiencing upticks in these types of crimes, right? So all the more important to be recording a podcast maybe right now <laughs> for Shelby. Um, I've heard you talk about jail as the front door to mass incarceration. What we're talking about is pre-child detention when people are accused of a crime and they, they have yet to be uh, determined guilty or not guilty. Um, but mass incarceration is, is you know, that is only a part of it. And, and our prison system here in Tennessee and, and in many places across the country continues to grow. I mean, a lot of places don't continue to grow, but ours does. So talk about why jail and pretrial detention is the so-called front door to mass incarceration. What are the what are the downstream effects of getting getting this right? Yeah, well, the downstream effects and the impact of getting bail and bail reform right is more public safety and more justice and more fairness and an end to mass incarceration. So here's some really simple statistics that I want everybody to know. When um, somebody has bail set that they can't afford, 
and they are in jail pre-trial compared to their counterpart who everything else is the same, the charge, any prior arrests, any other circumstances, demographics, if they're released versus whether they're in jail, the person who is in jail is more likely to be convicted of an offense. They're more likely to take a jail or prison sentence, and they're more likely to be arrested again in the future than the person who facing the exact same charges, exact same circumstances was released pretrial. So those are tremendous consequences. And what we know about money bail in particular is there's been study after study that finds that there is implicit bias in how decision makers use money bail. So again, take two people, exactly the same charges, same profile. Um, if there is a money bail system, the black individual is more likely to have bail set than the white one and more likely to have bail set at a higher amount. And because of what we know of generational wealth and poverty and that black families and black individuals in this country have historically had less wealth than white ones, they're less able to make bail. And so what pretrial detention and the bail system that we have has led to is certainly the front door to mass incarceration and the front door to tremendous gross racial disparities, which are true across the country. Any jail in this country, you look and see and you see racial disparities and who is behind bars, and that's only magnified as you go through the process and into prison. And so that is really what's driving the fact that we have 2.1 million people behind bars today in jails and prisons. And what we know is it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, we can have fewer people behind bars and be much safer as a result, be a more just country as a result. And all of us want that, right? People will say, I'm not satisfied with the status quo. I don't think it's working. That's true of mass incarceration too. There are very few Americans that think we can uh, arrest, uh, prosecute, and incarcerate our way to more public safety. There, we unfortunately have a few of those in very powerful positions in our community. But yeah, I, I find that to be true too in, in our work. You've peppered your answers with data, with examples uh, of, of evidence that these concepts, that these policy decisions can work. Um, and Vera, you know, and, and of course my circle is known for its ability to provide data, to provide proof. Um, Talk some about that work and how important it is at the local level for organizations like Young City um, to, to show the, the work, right? To, to bring receipts to this conversation. That's so important. Yeah. So I think you need three ingredients, if you will, for really effective policy change. And one is the heart and heat and the reminder of why we need this change. Like, what's the injustice that we're trying to address and fix the problem? The second is we need evidence and good sound data and information to actually make sound policy decisions. And the third is we need to build political will and support to not only win the policy change, but to shore it up when it will inevitably get attacked. And what I'd say we at Vera do really well is that second ingredient. We are uh, the folks who do a lot of research, we are very evidence-driven in our advocacy and our fight for policy change. And we work really closely with the folks who can talk about the injustice and remind people why we need to do things differently, as well as the folks who do great political organizing, who you know bring the people power we need to actually build political will for change. Um, I will say you can't win with just data and evidence alone. 
but you can't win without it. And so that's what I see our role in working with local community partners, other national partners, with government, as well as advocates. Like that's our secret sauce. And I think it's a really powerful one. And I'm grateful for the role that we play. It's a small role, but an important one in movements and wins across the country, including in Shelby County. Wow, that's a, um, that's a great summary. <laughs> For a short conversation, I think we could this could turn into a three-hour conversation, but no one would listen to that. Um, nope. And <laughs> right, so Although a question I that I like. To, no I know you could. I know you could, and I have a million questions. Uh, but for purposes of listenership, we may want to uh, may want to stop. And and you know, you know, folks can certainly find out uh, more about you and more about fear and hear more of your. Um, your case uh, for bail reform, for meaningful criminal justice reform, all over the internet. Some fantastic videos, uh, articles. You've been doing this as you said for a long time. So I would encourage people to go find more of Insha uh, on the internet and more of why this why this works. But one thing I like to talk about with folks who come on the podcast is is the role of mercy, and um, I think it just it gives us a little bit of a window into people's souls and reasons for being involved in this work, um, and. So, I mean, the, the simple question is, is, is there a role for mercy in the American criminal legal system? Um, how, how I feel like that it's not present, it's not evident at this time, but uh, you can see flashes of it. And how can we have a system that includes this value that I think a lot of people, a lot of Americans, a lot of people in this country value for various reasons, whether it be faith or, or otherwise. Um, but but talk, talk about what mercy is to you and what it can mean in our in systems like the ones we've been talking about. Yeah, I think people fundamentally want to see a system in which there is mercy and there is compassion. And people also want to see accountability. And too often, accountability is actually turned into punishment. And that's the system that we have. We have a criminal legal system that from start to finish is very good at punishment, is actually very bad at accountability and lacks fundamental values that we all share around mercy and compassion. And what does mercy mean to me? So I mentioned I come from a South Asian Muslim immigrant family. Um, what really drove my commitment to social justice work? My childhood was spent um, you know, doing things uh, with the, the mosque that I grew up in, with my family, um, to make our community better. So just a, a little anecdote of what that looked like. My mom, um, who's an incredible cook, would spend all day in the weekend, like one day cooking and creating these little boxes of food because I grew up in a town where there were a lot of day workers. And then we would drive around and my job, this was basically since I was a kid, um, was to jump out when we would see a group of day workers and hand out boxes of food. And my mom did this literally every week, um, my entire childhood when I went off to college and there was nobody to go jump out and drop off these boxes of food, my dad sat in that front seat and did it. And they did that until, until they retired. So that's what mercy, that's what goodness, that's what compassion and love for others looks like to me. And that was instilled from very early on. And I know I say that, and I know every single person listening to this podcast and every single person has some version of what does mercy and compassion and love and care for others look like, whatever your own story is. And if we have a system that comes from that place that reflects that value as opposed to the one of punishment, 
we would have a system that works so much better for safety, for accountability, for justice. Wow, that's, uh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for um, for sharing that that personal note and for answering that question so uh, so well. Insha Rockman is Vice President for Advocacy and Ships at the Beer Institute for Justice. Thank you for joining us, Insha. Uh, thanks for having me, Josh. Great to be on here. That was my interview with Insha Rahman of the Vera Institute for Justice. I hope you enjoyed. Special thanks to Dylan Sandifer for helping produce this episode and to Ryan Azada for making sure it gets recorded, edited, and published. Jeff Hewlett wrote and performed She Got Gone, the original theme music for the permanent record. Jeff's back playing live. He's got a new album coming out. Look for him on Bandcamp, Spotify, and go check him out live. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work and find previous episodes of this podcast at our brand new website, justcity.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at justcity901. Make sure you subscribe to The Permanent Record somewhere and give us a rating if you would. It really helps. In a Just City, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both.